0: Well, hey uh, my name is mike i'm the lead pastor here at mcc and i just want to welcome all of our guests especially if you're a first-time guest today Uh, we have a gift for you just for being here our way of saying thanks and we hope that you will join us Uh, next week as well. And I just want to say hey to everyone who is watching online. You know, one of the things that we know, and I don't know if you know this or not, but what we know is that before people will come here, the vast majority of people, before they'll come here on a Sunday, they'll check us out online. So if that's you today, if you're checking us out online, I just want to say we're looking forward to seeing you soon. Uh, So here we go. Listen. Have you ever invited someone to worship with you? You ever invited someone to come to church with you? I was at a uh, conference where I heard a pastor talk about regularly inviting his friend who was an agnostic attorney, Uh, but he was his friend and he was pretty crusty, pretty far from God, Uh, but he had invited him a whole bunch of times. He'd been praying for him for a long time and he was hoping that that investment in prayer and time would pay off. And one Sunday, just as the service was getting started, he saw his friend come in the back door and the seats were kind of full. And so the guy who was showing people to their seats brought him all the way uh, to the front, sat him right down front. Uh, He's actually was sitting next to one of the mentally handicapped uh, members of his church. And at the invitation time, uh, the preacher noticed that the two men were whispering and then the attorney got up and walked out and he was not happy when he walked out. And he was so, listen, after trying so hard to get his friend to come, after praying for so long for him, he was so frustrated that something had obviously gone wrong on the front row right there. Well, the next Sunday, the attorney was back, and uh, at invitation time, he came forward to accept Jesus, and after the minister asked uh, what motivated his decision, uh, the attorney said, well, I hate to disappoint you, but it wasn't anything that you, you said. It was the guy I sat next to last week. He said, at the end of the service, he leaned over and he asked me, do you want to go to heaven? He said, I was so offended by it. I looked at him and said, no. And he said, the guy said to me, well, then go to hell. <laughs> he said, it bothered me all week. So I came forward today. <laughs> Listen, I just, I tell you that because as Christians, as Christians, we're supposed to impact people who are far from, who are saying no to God. We're supposed to be impacting them. I just, I'm not sure I recommend that guy's, you know, his approach to that. But if you're new here to MCC, it's why we say we exist. We say we exist to help people begin and build. As a matter of fact, that's on your notes because I want to make sure everybody here gets it. It's why we're here to help people begin and build, grow that relationship uh, with, with Jesus. And there is something I want to tell you that there's something that you, you already have this thing that I'm about to talk about. You have this thing that very naturally helps other people make a decision uh, about Jesus. And Peter talks about it at the end of the new Testament. He says, be ready to speak up and tell anyone who asks why you're living the way you are. So when someone watches you and they go, what, I don't, tell me what this is all about. When you tell them that, always say it with the utmost uh, courtesy. So the last couple of weeks, in case this is your first Sunday, uh, the last couple of weeks we've been talking about. We're in this series called Rooted, and we're talking about those things that are part of our life that help our faith grow. So the roots of our faith. What are the habits that we need to have to help us grow in our faith? And we've looked at the first week. We talked about spending time with God and how that helps us on a day-to-day basis. We, our roots just grow strong. Last week talked about uh, spending time with other Jesus followers because their faith can uh, impact our faith today. And this may surprise you, at least some of us, but I don't know if you looked at the top of the paper, sharing my story, sharing my story is one of those habits that there's something about my sharing what my story is that helps my faith grow, but it also does something else. When I share my story, it helps other people make a decision about who Jesus is going to be in their life. That's why, by the way, it's why Peter wrote what he did. So here's what I want to make sure you get today. It's at the top of your notes as well. The way Jesus has worked in my life, the way Jesus has worked in your life can inspire hope in someone else's life. When they hear what he has done in my life, how he has changed me, it can inspire hope in them. Because Jesus has this story that he is writing through your life that he wants others to see so that they can be drawn Uh, to him. Now, some of us here this morning in the room right now, you you find that easy to believe because you've you've seen it in, in action. You already know there are others of us who don't believe it at all. I mean, we just don't believe our story is good enough, right? We don't have that, the kind of story that God can use. And others of us, when we hear this idea of sharing our story, scares us to death, right? I mean, there's no way you're talking to anybody about nothing. Uh, and we'll talk about all of that. And we're going to do it uh, from a story about a guy. Uh, and we're going to, it's a story that some of you may know. So check this out. In Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 26, it says, they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake, from Galilee. Now, we've kind of picked up in the middle of a story. Uh, the they that is referred to in this verse is Jesus and the twelve, uh, and uh, they have, Jesus has done some teaching, and then they set off across the lake uh, that evening, and that was a two-hour trip, but a violent stor- storm comes up out of nowhere, almost sinks the ship, and Jesus calms the storm. So now they're on the other side of the lake, and verse 27 tells us that a demon-possessed man from the town uh, was their welcome wagon, came out to greet them. He lives among the tomb. Look at how he's described. Luke tells us that he lived in a cemetery. Now, just to be very clear, I want to make sure we have a good image of this. Uh, When you think of cemetery, their tombs were either natural caves or they were cut out of stone. Uh, Some of them were so large, they were supported by columns. So I just want to make sure, you know, he didn't go lie down in a hole at night uh, in the ground, like maybe you think of here in America. Rather, it was more of a cave, but it was a tomb. I want to make sure we all know his roommates and his neighbors were all, you know, dead. And uh, I just want to make sure he knew that. Uh, Luke also tells us he hadn't worn clothing for a long time. How many of you, uh, uh, raise your hand, if you remember the streaking phenomenon of the 70s? You remember when that was a thing, all right? How many of you, raise your hand, if you saw someone streaking? Huh? Yeah? 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 I am not going to ask the next question. We we all know the progression. Uh, (laughs) There's no way. (laughs) Don't raise your hands, all right? Hey, a few years ago, I was in Philadelphia with a friend of mine, Phil, actually Phil Denlinger here at the church. Uh, We were looking at some of the historical sites. We had a meeting later that night, but uh, during the day, we, we were just checking out some historical sites. And while we're walking down the sidewalk, I noticed this guy uh, who kind of came by us on a bicycle. He wasn't wearing a shirt, which, you know, isn't that unusual, Uh, it was hot outside. But then I noticed he also didn't have on any pants. Um, and then I saw another guy. And then I saw a clump of men and women riding their bikes. And then a bunch more. It, I mean, it took a little while for this to register what I was looking at. It turns out it was Philly Naked Bike Ride Day. And I happened to be just along their route as they all go riding their bikes naked by us. Thankfully, they were all wearing helmets because, I mean, we want them to be safe. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, <laughs> <but> I just... <laughs> That and a smile, Uh, but I gotta tell (laughs) you, that was weird, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Look at verse 29. I kinda picture him uh, as he comes out. He's standing there with broken chains from his hands and his feet where they tried to chain him up, but he was so strong, he would just break the chains. Author Ken Geyer, when he writes about him, he says, he was a creature you would probably meet only in your worst nightmare. He writes like a rabid animal. He lived on the outer fringe of humanity. There were no houses in Palestine for men like him. There are no hospitals, no asylums. Like a jackal, he's left to roam in a no-man's land on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. His hair is matted in filth, tangled. His body is scarred white around the wrists and ankles where manacles once tried to restrain him. His haggard body is gashed with the self-inflicting punishment of stones. His life was one of wretchedness and misery, and we don't know when, but at some point... He gave ground to the devil, and then he gave an opening, and a crowd of demons moved in and took over his life. In verse 28, when Jesus lands, he runs to him, and he cried out. He shouted. I don't know if you can imagine. He shouted at the top of a voice. What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. And the next verse tells us that Jesus looked at him and asked him, what's your name? Look at his response. Legion, because many demons had gone into him. Two notes of interest, I think, at least I find them interesting. I want to point them out. So all the gospels tell the story of this man. And when Mark tells this story in his gospel, when he speaks, when you're reading this story in the gospel of Mark, the verb tenses go from singular to plural six times. Even in our verses, verses 30 and 31, it suggests that sometimes he is speaking, the man is speaking, and at other times, the demons are speaking. And in verse 32, they beg Jesus to send them into a herd of pigs that are feeding on a nearby hill, and he gives them permission. Verse 33 says, when the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned, which is kind of the second point of interest. Uh, I think at any rate, a Roman legion consists of 6,000 foot soldiers There are many scholars who take this to mean that as many as 6,000 demons had taken residence in this man, there were enough. That, so when Mark tells this story, he gives us this detail that there were 2,000, not just a herd of pigs, 2,000 pigs on the hillside. So many demons were in this man that they went into these pigs, 2,000 of them went insane. Now there's a whole lot to this story, but I want to take you right to the very end. The people who were herding the pigs, the ones who were out there watching, tending the pigs, they went into town, they knocked Jesus out, right? And the people came out from the town. And when they saw no pigs. And then they saw Legion sitting at Jesus's feet feet, and he was dressed and in his right mind, right? So here's this guy who's absolutely bananas. He's sitting at Jesus's feet, dressed in his right mind. Their response in verse 37 is they ask him, they ask Jesus uh, to leave because they were overcome with fear. They're scared out of their mind. They're scared silly. So he gets in the boat and he leaves, which kind of sounds like the end of the story, by the way. And maybe if you've heard the story, that's kind of where it ended. But look at how it continues. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, begged to go with Jesus. But Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. There is a ton, there's a ton there. But here's what I want to make sure that you see. In verse 38, Jesus is getting in the boat. And this guy's response Think about his response. He, he didn't say, listen, if, if you have an extra seat in the boat, I was wondering what you would think if maybe I-. that's not what he did. I'm not even sure he was polite about it we're told he begged. He be- I looked the word beg up in a thesaurus, and words like beseech and implore and-, and plead and nag were all there. I mean, can you imagine how desperate this man is if he could just get in that boat with Jesus, if he could just go away with him and leave the past behind? That would be the answer to all of his pain and all of his disgrace. At least that's what he's thinking. And when he asks it, when he begs, when he pleads with Jesus, please let me just get this behind me. Jesus looks at him and says, no. No, there's something else I want you to do. The best thing the ex-demoniac could do would be go back to his family and friends and tell all of them what God had done for him. Listen, who's better equipped than this man to convince people of God's power to change lives? And so I think what Jesus said to him, I think he would say to us, and here's the first one, it's on your notes, because I want to make sure you get this. I need to be able to tell my story. I need to be able to tell mine. You need to be able to tell yours. Go home to your family and your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. By the way, that's where our that's where Christianity starts. It starts with those who know you the best. It's the people who have seen you with no patience. Now your patience is growing. It's the people who have seen the alcohol abuse, and now they see sober and in their right mind. It's the people who have seen the negativity, and now they see a positive person who's at least being able to see the glass, you know, getting a little fuller, and, and they're seeing that grow, and they're seeing joy. If this man's parents were alive, how embarrassed do you think they were by his behavior? What do you think when, they showed up, when he showed up at their doorsteps wearing clothes? instead of, you know, naked Philly bicycle riding day, right? Uh, Listen, listen, they had to be skeptical. They open the door and look at him and say, can I help you? Who are you? He goes, dad, it's me. I mean, his hair is combed. He's got clothes on now. It's, It's wild. His look is out of his, it's me. Mom, don't you even recognize your own son? This Jewish man that everyone keeps talking about has freed me. You know, the one, the one they call Jesus. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, yep, Mike, you know, I'd love to go to my family and tell them what Jesus has done to me. (laughs) I've just screwed up too much. Talked to a young man between services this morning who was telling me it's, it's, it is a mess. I can't believe what I've done to my life. I can only imagine this, you know, uh, they, they won't believe me. I just want to say, number one, your past can't be as bad as legions. Listen, what, why would you and I think this man's parents or wife or kids would believe him right away? I mean, momentarily, he seems to be okay, but who knows what's going to happen next? I, I mean, who, telling someone about Jesus involves both your mouth and your actions. Let your actions speak loudly and then let your mouth catch up. Why do you think God gives us a family? Do you think it's just so that we won't be lonely in this world? God gives you a family so that you can lead them to Jesus so that they can in turn tell the other generations and their friends about who he is and what he does. Why does God want you to have friends and to be friendly with people? It isn't just so you have someone to be in a fantasy football league with or to watch March Madness with, right? That's not what it's about. God wants you to have friends so that you can show your friends the difference Jesus has made in your life and can do for them. Can you imagine how hard it must have been? To go back to those who had witnessed his insanity. The people who had just seen how just absolutely crazy he was. How embarrassing would it be to try to step back into the mainstream of society. To be walking down the street. The fingers that would be pointing at him. The moms who would pull their children back onto the sidewalk. Because you never know when he's going to snap again, right? I just want to say sharing your story frees you of the power of secrecy and shame. And encourages others. Several weeks ago when I was talking about marriage, uh, one of our ladies said, man, I would love to share my story. Our story hasn't always been what it is today. And some people look at our lives, they look at our marriage, and they think that it's always been what it is today, and it hasn't been at all. It's been a long journey to get to where we are. And people may think that about you and your faith. You've always been the way you are. And they have no idea what kind of a journey you have been on. Here's the thing. What if what if my story isn't that great? I mean, I do not have As a As stories. Matter of fact, and our teaching team was talking about this passage. I told them, you know, we need to get somebody up there who's got a great story. And they said, well, why don't you tell your story? And I said, well, because my story is not that glamorous. I don't know who it would encourage, you know? I mean, you know what my story is, right? My mom was baptized two months before I was born. I grew up going to church. As a matter of fact, my best guess is from the day I was born until today, The number of times I've not been in worship on a weekend, you could count on two hands and have many fingers left over. I would actually, I'd say one hand and still have a finger or two left over, but I kind of want to be conservative. When I was 11 years old, I was baptized. The problem was I was going to church, but I wasn't following Jesus. Jesus. And I don't know about you, but you know, for all of us, there tends to be this moment of clarity in our lives when we can point to it and say, yeah, that's kind of the turning point for me. And for me, it was seven years after I was baptized. I was in college. I was a freshman. I was in a dorm room and I had someone questioning me. Listen, I, I had no plans for my future. I, I hadn't chosen a major yet. There was no career path. Uh, that I had even looked at. I just figured I would go get a degree, have some fun, and then figure it out. And then once I got there, I decided to switch the order and have some fun and then get a degree and then maybe figure it out. But I got to tell you, nowhere in my wildest dreams, on the, nowhere in the horizon was ministry. It wasn't on the short list or long list. It wasn't on any list of anything I was going to do. Ministry was not something I was shooting at. And I was in this dorm room, and I was challenged about what I actually believed, and it dawned on me, I'm a churchgoer, I'm not a Jesus follower. And there's a huge difference. And I began to read the Bible that year, freshman year in college, I began to read the Bible, which I'd never done before. I mean, I'd heard it in sermons and little snippets. I began to read it for myself and pray, I mean, really pray, not just at mealtime and bedtime, but I began to pray for people. I began to pray for myself. I began to ask questions of God and just listen for his voice in my life, and I began to ask questions of others. And then I took what I learned from what I read in the Bible, I took that and I actually began to apply it to my life and to try to live that out. And today I spend time with God. Listen, I don't, Every day, I spend time alone with God. There's some days I miss. Something happens, my schedule gets out of whack, and I miss. But almost every day, as often as I can, I spend time with God alone, and it has changed who I am. It changes the kind of man I am. It changes the husband that I have been. It changes the kind of dad that I have been. It changes the kind of neighbor, the kind of employer, you know, worker. Uh, He guides all of my past, and I want to be real clear with my story. I am still becoming... I am not perfect. I'm not sinless. I still struggle with sin every day, just like you do. And sometimes I win and sometimes I lose. I am still in a state of becoming, but I will tell you, I am a different man with Jesus than I ever would have been without him. And that, listen, that story is not glamorous, but I wonder how many people have struggled with going to church and not following Jesus. Jesus. I wonder how many people are sitting here this morning and you know as I say those words, that's you. You're here every weekend or every other weekend or quite often. You're here all the time. But going to church and following Jesus can be two entirely different things. Or maybe, listen, maybe your story isn't like mine at all. Maybe you spent the last 10 years at the bottom of a bottle or at the end of a syringe. And your story still tells that God works that's why Paul would write this when he wrote to the church in Thessalonica he said when we were with you we lived in a holy and honest way without fault you know this is true and so does God well how would they know it's true it's because he lived in the midst of them he was right that they were all around him all the time listen you can fake it for an hour you can fake it for a day you can't fake it over years people see who you really are And that your story, when you live that out in front of them, that you're following Jesus, it makes it believable, especially when you tell this other story, because there's a second story we need to be able to tell, and it's God's story. So I need to be able to tell my story, and I need to be able to tell God's story. And can I tell you right now, I just want to make sure you hear this, it doesn't matter how you tell it, What matters is that you tell it. But I keep showing you this one way to show it so that when your friend notices your life and asks, how did you get there? How did you get that attitude? Why do you treat your wife or your husband that way or your children? And is it possible that I can be like you are? You can tell them, of course you can. God has always wanted you to be in relationship with him. It goes all the way back to the very beginning. I mean, it's the story of God and us. He created Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 1, Garden of Eden. God created us to be in relationship with him. It's always been that way since the very beginning. But something happened in that first story. Very, right out of the shoot, the beginning of human history, Adam and Eve sinned, separated them from God. And we look at that, and we, 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 we look at their story, and we know that our problem with God isn't that Adam and Eve sinned. My problem with God is that I sin. Your problem with God is that you sin. And so that causes this separation between us and God. And we know instinctively, it's not, God didn't do anything wrong. We did. It's what we said. It's the way we treat people. It's the way we don't treat people. And so we try to do things. If I can just balance the scales, if I can be a little more good than I am bad, that will help. And so we keep trying to do good things to get in good with God. And we know we keep coming up short. We can't be good enough. We're not good enough on our own. And we know we need to take care of this because if this goes beyond our lifetime and follows us after our death this separation from God is called hell. As a matter of fact, that is what hell is. Hell is a total separation from God. And we may be in bad places here on earth, but God is still here. Hell is the absolute absence of God. There is no presence of God in hell. And so we know we need to not allow that to happen. But since there's nothing that we can do for ourselves, creates his fear. Here's the thing, 2,000 years ago, and this is the great news of our faith. It's what we're going to celebrate in just a a little over a month is the story of Easter, is that Jesus came and he gave his life on a cross so that that we can be with God. This bridge or this cross acts like a bridge for us to get from where we are back to God. And all we have to do is three things. All we have to do is three things. And the first one is we need to believe. As a matter of fact, John 3:16 is probably the most memorized verse in the Bible, right? Uh, God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that if you'll just believe in him, you won't perish, but you'll have eternal life. That's step one. All you have to do is believe. The second step is that you need to repent, And repent is just a Bible word that means you tell the truth to God, tell the truth about what's going on in your life. God, these are the things I struggle with. This is where I have failed. I know that you, this is, this stands in opposition. I've made these decisions that are in opposition to you. I know that I kind of knew it when I made those decisions. It's not your fault. It's not anyone else. It's not my parents. It's not anyone else's fault. It's my fault. I made these decisions. And when we repent and we turn to God and we let him know, our sins are wiped out. The third thing the Bible says we need to do is to be baptized. As a matter of fact, when Peter's asked by the crowd, what do we need to do to be saved? He says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's, that's it. Those are the three steps. And I believe that this man did exactly when Jesus is talking to him in the story if you look at verse 30, he does exactly what Jesus tells him to do. Now, the reason I say that is because when Jesus returns back to this area, he's not kicked out. Now, remember at the end of our story, the people are afraid because they see this guy sitting there in his right mind, next to Jesus, fully clothed, and they become very afraid and they kick Jesus out. So he gets in the boat. You remember that? Jesus comes back a second time to this area. And when he comes back, he's received warmly. As a matter of fact, when he comes back the second time, you know the feeding of the 5,000? There's another story, the feeding of the 4,000. It happens in this area. Why would the people of the Decapolis, which is the name of this area, Ten Cities, Deca, Decapolis, why would they give Jesus a different reception? The Bible doesn't say. But I suspect it has a lot to do with this guy who used to be a lunatic, who had an encounter with Jesus and couldn't stop talking about it. As a matter of fact, commentaries also point out that after the time of Jesus, after Jesus ascended back to heaven, there were strong, thriving, healthy Christian communities in every one of those 10 cities, all because a guy who was embarrassed to death by his past and begged Jesus, just let me get out of here. Please, let me just run from my story. And Jesus said, no, there's something else you need to do. And he did it. He returned home and told How much God had done for him. Can I tell you, people already know what kind of life you're living. They are watching you. Your next door neighbors, people you work with, drop your kids off at school, they all, and you need to understand this. If you've made a commitment to Jesus, I don't care who you are. They're watching you. My neighbors are watching me. I don't tell any. I was on a plane this past week, and I was sitting in the middle of this couple. She likes the window. He likes the aisle. So the window seat between them is empty. I'm sitting between them. I was really hoping to read. I got to talk for two and a half hours, and uh, as we're talking, the the lady, I never say anything. I never tell anyone what I do for a living. And this, the lady says, I perceive that you are a pastor. (laughs) I said, yeah. Listen, I don't know how my neighbors know what I do for a living. Maybe it's the neon cross on our roof. Maybe it's the lighted high halo I wear around the neighborhood. I don't know what it is. But you need to know your neighbors know where you are. If you think you leave your house about the same time every weekend and go somewhere and come back about the same time and you're not carrying groceries, if you think that they don't know where you've been, you're the only one being fooled this morning. They know where you've been. And if you're really living out your faith, at some point, they're going to want to know what makes you tick. Why do you do these things that you do? Why do you think this way? Why do you see the world this way? Which takes us to that prayer at the bottom of your notes. I love this prayer. Lord, don't let me be just a sign, but a fork in the road that when people come to me, they have to go one way or the other. They can't just go by me. When they get to my life, they have to decide which way they're going to go. Listen, that takes us to our time of communion, because we're about to, this, this this decision, this time of next step. Our communion is a time of confirming and affirming that about. I need to be able to tell my story, and all your. By the way, your story is just here's who I was before Jesus became real in my life, whether you went to church or not. Here's what it was like before Jesus became real. Here's where Jesus came into my life, how it happened, and here's what I've been like ever since and what I'm trying to become like. That's all that is. And so in the middle of your story is God's story because his story is the same. His story is the same. All of our stories are different. His story is the same. He sent his son to die for us. And it's at the communion time that these two stories intersect. We have this divine intersection in our lives where we met Jesus and he changed us and began to write a new story. And I hope that every time we take the emblems that remind us of Jesus's body and his blood that was given for our sins, that you're reminded of that. There's this intersection in your story. And that you're encouraged that your story can help someone ask God to rewrite theirs just like he rewrote yours. Let's go to him in prayer. God, we do pray for this time now that as we come before you and this time where we take these emblems and we hold them in our hands for, the, for a moment, God, may they not pass so quickly that we, that we don't think. May we not take them without realizing what they remind us of and where your life met ours and we opened our hearts up to you that, we might, that you would come in and make us different people, that who we are today is not who we were five years ago or 10 years ago. For some of us, decades ago, you continue to change us. Even now, we are still in a state of becoming because we're following you and allowing you to continue to change us. So God may this moment remind us of that and may we be willing and able to help our friends know what our story is that we've not always been this way that you continue to remake us in the image of your son Jesus and that you want that for them too God we give you this moment as we remember and we recommit our lives to you And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, who gave his life for ours. Amen.